On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, back in the saddle again. I'm Jim Sims, and welcome to this special Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day edition of Bring It On. We're celebrating 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, the issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And hello, I'm Clarence Boone, and in the next hour, you'll also hear a compelling interview with the 2016 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Birthday Celebration keynote speaker, Brittany Packnett, Executive Director for Teach for America in St. Louis. Also, we'll we'll highlight several of the community events uh, that celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday today, all in the next hour here on Bring It On. But first... Don't they say it on every radio program? Yeah, it, it, it's attention grabbing. It is. But first, tonight's City of Bloomington, Dr. Martin Luther June, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday celebration keynote speaker, Ms. Janae Nelson. I got that right. Is the Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Incorporated. She is also a former director of the LDF's Political Participation Group and a former NAACP LDF Legal Defense Fund Fried Frank Fellow. Prior to rejoining the LDF staff, Ms. Nelson was the Associate Dean for Faculty Scholarship and Associate Director of the Ronald H. Brown Center for Civil Rights and Economic Development at St. John's, uh, St. John's University School of Law, where she has also served as a full professor of law. During her eight years at St. John's, Ms. Nelson launched and led an annual student program at the Supreme Court of the United States and assisted in the direction of the Ronald H. Brown Prep Program for College Students, an award-winning law school pipeline program, among countless other service activities. She joins us for a conversation this evening as a lead-up to her conversation with the city, which begins at the Buskirk Chumley Theater at 7 p.m. Welcome, Attorney Nelson, to Bring It On. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you're quite, if, if I can get this started on the right tone, um, we all have different lived experiences and different sharing and different understandings. Now, my understanding of this sister I'm just made is she don't play. <laughs> I, I'm just, am, am I wrong? <laughs> Are you getting this? Translation, she has put Jim in his place. don't so play. <laughs> Next Welcome question. to Bring It On. As you can see, um, um, we love this program, and we just try to have a little bit of fun. But mm-hmm. yes. um, welcome you, and I think this is very, very important from the position um, that you hold and what you do, and particularly on the national scene, um, which matriculates down to take care of a lot of other things, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, but Clarence? There you go, sir. Uh, in, in our pre-conversation to this interview, and, and once again, as Jim just said, I want to echo that. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming to Bloomington. And we heard you this morning uh, sort of uh, give a lead-up series of uh, remarks uh, about tonight's conversation. And and if we have time, we will touch upon that cliffhanger that, that you left the audience with. Uh, also, thank you for braving our cold weather. I'm not <laughs> sure if it gets this cold out in uh, D.C. It might, um, but uh, we do thank you for joining us. Leading off, 
an interesting thing that I learned was that there is a difference between the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and legal, legal Defense and Educational Fund, and the NAACP. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Uh, we are, are very proud of our origins with the NAACP. We were founded in 1940. As you know, the NAACP was founded in 1909. Uh, so we were a later uh, arrival to the scene. But our focus has always been on using the law as an instrument to bring forth uh, racial justice and social change on behalf of African Americans and other marginalized groups. And uh, we were together as a unit for 17 years. Uh, but in 1957, we broke apart and created a separate organization, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, so that we could focus exclusively on bringing cases, on advancing policy work as a nonpartisan, independent organization. Uh, what most people don't know is that we are the only other organization that shares the NAACP moniker. And so we are often confused with the NAACP. Uh, but not only do we share that moniker, we also clearly share the same mission of racial justice. But we are two separate organizations. We've had a separate board of directors, separate facilities, separate leadership, separate everything uh, since 1957. But you do represent NAACP state conferences or units, um, should they have a legal need for that. Oh, um, absolutely. We now, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, we've represented uh, NAACP branches for as long as we've been in existence uh, in the same way that we represent any other organization that works and operates on behalf of African Americans. And the NAACP has been a a significant client and probably one of the most uh, frequent clients we've had because of their great reach and the wonderful work that they do in the field. So is there a range of, of uh, litigation of cases or do you focus mostly on constitutional um, based issues? Um, and I'm just asking because that's kind of what I've heard is that the fund tends to more constitutional based um, discrimination and that sort of thing as opposed to some of the other things you might get to locally. Sure. So we focus on civil rights issues, which can encompass uh, constitutional law claims and also claims that would be brought under civil rights statutes, for example. So when you think about Title VII and employment discrimination, and when you think about the Fair Housing Act of 1968, or you think about the Voting Rights Act of 1965, we use all of those instruments and others to enforce the rights of African Americans and other individuals and groups that are being discriminated against. Okay, thank I'll, you. I want to build on that. Um, there have been efforts not too long ago to undo or reverse a lot of the advances under the uh, Voting Rights Act, uh, and a lot of people have been rather concerned, if not a little, uh, a little nervous about that. Can you talk to us about what you've done as an organization to sort of head off? these advances and uh, what's been the result? That's an excellent question. Um, in 2013, the Supreme Court issued a decision called Shelby County versus uh, Holder. So it was a, a case that arose in Alabama. Um, and what it did was it disabled a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. And what that provision did was required certain jurisdictions, certain areas of the country that had 
been, you know, clear violators of voting rights for uh, for decades, for time since time immemorial. And what it did was require those jurisdictions to ask the federal government for approval before it could implement a new law. So effectively, it had to prove that it wasn't going to put minorities in a worse position if it enacted a new, let's say, photo ID law or uh, it, it ended early voting or if it changed a polling site or if it went from uh, single-member districts to at-large elections, any voting law had to, had to be pre-cleared by the federal government. But once that provision was disabled, uh, we've seen just so many states and local jurisdictions run rampant with discrimination. And I think this last midterm election was a was an excellent example of that. Uh, the state of Georgia is probably, <laughs> you know, one of the one of the most Textbook. significant offenders. Uh, but we've seen that across um, the South and in other parts of the country. I can point to Texas. I can um, point to so many other places where we've seen egregious violations. Florida um, and 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 rollbacks that would have previously been quashed by the federal government. We also, of course, have a different federal government <laughs> to deal with as well. Uh, you can say that again. Um, do you foresee participation in any gerrymandering issues? Um, and, and I know that's a, a softball. I just lost it there. Um, but that is a big issue here in Indiana. Um, are you in favor of the legislation, legislators doing that, or an independent, non-objective agency, uh, preferably the courts? Um, how, how do you see that playing out um, eventually? Sure. So the Legal Defense Fund has been involved in uh, gerrymandering cases and redistricting, um, you know, since the passage of the Voting Rights Act, when we were able to use that tool um, to ensure that uh, not only was there uh, you know, correct apportionment, but that when districts were drawn or when they weren't drawn, because that was often a problem as well, um, that we uh, went to court and ensured that African Americans received adequate political power and political representation. Uh, so we've been in, in countless cases, uh, some of the most landmark cases out of out of North Carolina, for example, that really set some of the standards around uh, political gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering. And we are in favor of any process that can guarantee that the Voting Rights Act will be enforced to its fullest, that minority communities and communities of interest will be kept together, um, and that will not be compromised by partisan interests. That would typically take the form of an independent redistricting commission. But there are state legislatures that can uh, redistrict in a fair manner. It's not as if there's there's something that you know forces them to do what they've been doing. In, it, Indi in Indiana. <laughs> well, listen. You know, of course, the the devil is in the details and the and the composition of that body in particular. Uh, but but we do think that because of the 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 rampant. Um, uh, misconduct that we've seen in the area of redistricting and and reapportionment, that independent redistricting commissions are the best tool available now to ensure fairness in that process. And um, to be fair, it's generally the party that's in power that does that. So um, hate to tell all of our folks out there, but many of us Democrats have done some of the same things. Um, just don't seem near as blatant or as numerous, um, <laughs> but but that is true. We have done the same thing, um, and we've sued Democrats as well. I mean, we our our, our interest is to protect Black voters, and we protect them against 
either political party or any political party that seems to threaten their rights. Okay, and for the benefit of our listeners, we're speaking this evening with Attorney Janai Nelson. I, I, I just want to say Janae so bad. It <laughs> is Janae, so that's why you want to say it. <laughs> Janae, Janae Nelson, Associate Director and Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Incorporated, um, who is joining us this evening to speak with us before she um, uh, heads to her keynote address at uh, Bloomington's Martin Luther King Jr. Birthday Celebration. Um, program in the that, city of Bloomington. in the city it of is. Bloomington uh, we're, we're talking along those lines let's let's talk about the Voting Rights Act um, and one of the things that's miffed me was the, the process where we go through with the renewal um, periodically and I don't know what is that every you would know better than well I, it, it, but, it, 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 but it, it struck me as why do we of all people have to seek a renewal every however many years um, to keep to maintain the right to vote. Yeah, and so I'm glad you asked that question because it's important to to clarify. Um, I don't know, well over a decade ago, you probably remember there were a number of emails that went around where it said black people are going to lose the right to vote. Um, if, if, if we don't reauthorize yes. this part of the Voting Rights yes. Act, black people will no longer be able to vote. Um, that was not technically true. Uh, what it referred to was that provision I mentioned just earlier that there was a part of the Voting Rights Act that required this extra federal protection. Mm. And what I think the people behind that that misinformation did understand was that while technically black people don't lose the right to vote, it would open the door for all sorts of mischief at the state and local level that would ultimately result in African-Americans not being able to to exercise their right to vote or to exercise it as equally as they once have. And, And frankly, we have seen that play out, but it doesn't mean that by law, we would lose the right to vote. So that was part of the issue. Unfortunately, we're not dealing with renewal at this point because that part of the that part of the act has been disabled. So right now it's suspended. We don't need to seek renewal. What we need to seek is restoration of that provision of the act. And uh, that's something that we can all take up. We are um, firm supporters of a new bill that's being represented by, um, or introduced, I'm sorry, by Representative Terry Sewell, HR1, which which resurrects uh, parts of the Voting Rights Act and has uh, democracy expanding provisions in it. And um, that is that is a way in which we can begin to restore some of the protections that we've had and uh, make up for uh, the exposure that that the Supreme Court has uh, has has put us before. Would that include at the national level the right of uh, former felons to vote? Uh, that that has been an effort that. Um, has been pushed particularly by Congressman John Conyers for, for years. And yes, the hope is that the bill would include that sort of democracy-expanding um, uh, uh, provision that would change the qualifications for voters at the federal level. What's mm-hmm. important to understand, though, is that Congress can't legislate what states can do in state elections mm-hmm. or local elections. But what is really impactful about federal legislation is once you say that you must allow people who have finished their sentences or even those who are currently incarcerated to vote, the state is not likely to try to maintain two different systems. They're likely to allow that same uh, qualification to apply to state and local elections as well. 
So it can have a very significant impact. Uh, a couple of um, follow-ups. We, Jim and I reside in a state that while under some circumstances former felons can vote, we have no hate crime legislation in Indiana. No, you don't. And, and can you tell us how many states do and then how many states have not seen the light on that? So Indiana is sadly one of only five states that does not have hate crime legislation. So it puts it in a, a very um, uh, uh, unpopular minority of states. And in this particular climate where we've seen an increase in hate crimes, where we've seen um, an increase of 17% between the year of 2016 and 2017, in 2017 alone there were 7,000 over 7,000 hate crimes committed, and three out of five of those were on the basis of race or ethnicity. Um, we're seeing this all over social media. We're seeing this uh, in all the headlines that this is truly um, a scourge on, on our community. And the one way for states to send a firm message is to have hate crime legislation, to say that that sort of uh, bigotry, that that kind of violence will not be tolerated in a great state like Indiana. Well, some of the legislatures in Indiana, first of all, there's a definition issue, I think, with them. I think it's clear with us. Um, but one of their arguments is that a group like the Ku Klux Klan that could inflict um, discriminatory practices against a whole group is not the same thing as an individual who will commit a crime that is based and rooted in hate as opposed to the group. So what say you, was I clear on that? Is that uh, individual, they said that the judges already have enough um, uh, latitude to give more time if they think it was warranted. But so they say, many of them say, we don't need the hate crimes because it doesn't inflict on the entire population, but more individuals. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not clear on that, um, uh, but that's. Well, let me take a stab at it. I think, um, you know, clearly there there's um, a recognition that there are groups that uh, are based on hate and that terrorize communities, although the Ku Klux Klan has not been named as a terrorist group, even though um, <laughs> I, I think it bears all the yes. all the um, characteristics of one. Um, individuals can inflict a great deal of harm on communities and terrorize communities as well on the basis of immutable characteristics um, and even chosen characteristics like religion and uh, and others. And so I don't know that I make as uh, serious a distinction as the legislators here do uh, between those types of crimes. If we look at some of the mass shootings, if we look at uh, the impact of even um, just a targeted act of violence uh, and the ripple effects that it has throughout an entire community, uh, it, it's quite serious and significant. So uh, a hate crime bill makes it clear that the the power structure in a state will not tolerate that sort of violence. And, and I think it not only is symbolic, but it also um, adds an extra degree of of, uh, of punishment and consideration for judges or, or, or um, tools for judges to ensure that they stamp out that sort of behavior. And given the history of this country, if we're going to move past that sort of hate and past that sort of terror against communities of color and other communities that have been uh, routinely discriminated against, we need those types of measures. You, you know, along the, uh, the line of hate crime and even you begin to touch on fairness and sentencing, um, what has really struck the black community and really all of America over the last 
three to four summers, if not through the year, are these questionable police action shootings. Last night, uh, I had the, um, I was fortunate to hear um, Trayvon Martin's father mm-hmm. at the IUPUI, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Uh, celebration dinner. And he, he said up front, I'm not a lecturer, but I'm a father who's grieving. And, and he shared his pain. We absorbed uh, somewhat a, a, just a small percentage of what he's probably going through. But then your mind keeps going back to not only his loss, but then other loss of life under questionable situations. I just saw where the, the officer who uh, killed the young man in Chicago. Laquan McDonald. Has been sentenced. Uh, do you think... Have you have you taken on cases that uh, have fought to? Well, you can't overturn a um, grand jury ruling, but have you taken on cases that would maybe set the stage or process by which there is a review? And Jim, you sit on a review committee here in Bloomington uh, of of steps that need to be taken to both prevent, better train, and then address when a when a questionable situation does arrive. And then the fact that these cases get thrown out and individuals are exonerated when video evidence, eyewitness evidence shows something very different. And have you, have you championed those type of cases? Absolutely. We, um, we have a policing reform campaign that we uh, started in response to Michael Brown's killing and Eric Garner's killing in 2014. We had already been doing police reform work. We had already lifted up uh, the killings of unarmed African-American men in particular, but obviously we know this has uh, this this has harmed women as well. Uh, but we actually started a formal campaign to really survey um, the landscape of these killings and to determine what were some of the causes, what were some of the legal impediments to convicting law enforcement, uh, how could we change how we interact with law enforcement, and really how can we rethink public safety uh, as a community and as a society. So we've been doing that. We've been very active in several jurisdictions, including Chicago, including Baltimore, including Ferguson, um, uh, North Charleston, and other areas, New York, where, where our headquarters are. And uh, we found that there are a number of factors. One, you know, implicit bias and explicit bias are still rampant in law enforcement. There is a culture of bias. There's a culture of presumed criminality against black people. Uh, And if anyone is really honest about it, uh, they will recognize that that is the case. Now, there are some law enforcement agencies that are trying to counter that with training, that are trying to counter that with other measures that, um, that, that, that don't seem to convict and indict entire communities at once before they've before before they've even shown themselves to do anything wrong. Um, we also recognize that there are are actual legal structural barriers to uh, indicting and convicting police officers. Not in all instances, as we see, there are sometimes that they get they get time. Uh, but there is a concept called qualified immunity, where law enforcement is immunized by law from being convicted of, of acts um, if they could not foresee that that would be a violation of someone's constitutional rights. So it's a somewhat complicated concept, but effectively it says if the officer didn't think 
and would not the reasonable officer would not have known that he or she was violating someone's constitutional rights when they fill in the blank of whatever violent act caused harm, then they receive immunity. Um, and, and that's premised upon the idea that law enforcement is likely to be engaged in some uh, interaction and altercation with the public from time to time. And it can't be that they uh, uh, would be brought into court in every instance. But what we have found is that the standard of qualified immunity uh, is far too generous towards law enforcement, um, that it's been misinterpreted and misconstrued in the in the cases uh, that have created the doctrine. And we need to really rethink what that's about, because it doesn't just harm the communities that uh, you know, have the the members that are subject to violence. It harms the perception of law enforcement. Those law enforcement officers who who really do want to do the right thing and really do want to serve and protect the public. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Attorney Janae Nelson, uh, who is a associate director and counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She's been holding court here in our studio for <laughs> close to a half hour. And uh, before we conclude, which we only have about five minutes, uh, we may not be able to touch on these two other issues. I want to talk a little bit about immigration, which is in the news, but then the black farmer's plight. Uh, that has been something of interest. But I, I do want to know who is attorney Jay Nelson. And then, you know, you, you left our listening audience this morning at the breakfast on a cliffhanger. Uh, and, and you and you, and you just expertly said, I ought to hear what I really think about this. You have to join me at seven. But <laughs> if you'll talk a little bit about your, the emphasis on tonight's address. So first of all, who is Janae Nelson? And then the emphasis for tonight's address. Oh, who is Janae Nelson? Uh, I don't know if I can answer that in, in five minutes, but I'll just <laughs> simply say um, I, I am a racial justice advocate from New York City uh, with interests in every black community of this country. Um and I'm very delighted to be here in Bloomington and incredibly impressed and uh, uh, just inspired by the way in which you celebrate Dr. King. Okay, we're going to go a level lower. What inspired you as a young lady, as a little girl, to pursue law? Uh, that's a great question. I, I grew up in an area that... Um, was predominantly black and extraordinarily poor and extraordinarily under-resourced and extraordinarily isolated. And uh, I somehow knew that there was a, a significant degree of unfairness that had to have occurred to create those conditions. I knew that the people that I grew up with did not deserve to be in the position they were in, did not earn that position. Um, and as I grew up and grew older and got more exposed um, to the way in which this government works, the way in which society works, the way in which uh, structures uh, work, um, I realized the very intric intricate web and the, the, the systems uh, that create impoverished communities and concentrate poverty uh, and that are largely based on race and racial segregation. And so I, I figured that, you know, how can I possibly uh, begin to unravel this and, and disrupt what has been such a longstanding system? And I began to learn about the work of the Legal Defense Fund and people like Thurgood Marshall and uh, Constance Baker Motley and Charles Hamilton Houston and, you know, just the many uh, illustrious uh, uh, incredible legal minds and advocates that are at the foundation of the Legal Defense Fund and figured um, that I could build on the wonderful foundation that they laid and try to do my part as well. And in the final minute and a half, 
um, your emphasis on tonight, and if you don't feel led to lead to lead into the cliffhanger, that's fine. We'll just have to be there at seventy here. <laughs> I kind of, really well. I, I kind of sense what you may say, but I'm not going to uh, assume. But but t- the emphasis for tonight, if you will. Sure, the emphasis for tonight, and I, I hope I didn't overstate the cliffhanger, it's not going to be that much of a blockbuster, <laughs> so let me be clear. Um, but the, the, what, what I hope to emphasize tonight is um, how easy it is to fall into the trap of thinking of Dr. King's legacy as one that is uh, one, you know, completely uh, uh, finished and, and something we can put in a box and tie up with a bow uh, and bring out as a gift on his birthday and, and celebrate as if it were a fait accompli, as if we really finished the work of the civil rights movement. Um, and, and what I want to emphasize is how much more work there needs to be done about the fact that he was aware of that and he pointed us in that direction. And that's where I'd like to pick up tonight is to understand the context that we're in, understand the need for a very sober-minded view of Dr. King and his legacy and the charge that he left us with. I think that you'll find the Bloomington audience tonight receptive. Um, We claim to be a progressive community, and many of us are. Um, So I think many folks are looking forward to what you have to say tonight. So I hope you feel warm and welcome. And they will be listening. <laughs> well, I hope so, and I really appreciate being here. We want to thank Attorney Janae Nelson, Associate Director and Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Incorporated, for joining us to better acquaint herself with the city of Bloomington before her keynote address as the 2019 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Birthday Celebration Keynote Speaker. Her presentation begins at 7 p.m. 7 p.m., y'all, don't be late evening this evening at the Buskirk Chumley Theater located at 114 East Kirkwood Avenue.
Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. And for those scratching your heads trying to figure out what was that interlude music, well, that was the Mighty Temp singing Ball of Confusion. At the top of the hour, we mentioned that we are featuring a compelling interview with the 2016 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Birthday Celebration keynote speaker, Ms. Brittany Packnett, Executive Director for Teach for America in St. Louis. Here now is that interview with co-anchors William Hosea and Cornelius Wright. First up, we just happen to have with us the keynote speaker for tonight's MLK Jr. Birthday Celebration, Ms. Brittany Packnett, Executive Director for Teach for America in St. Louis, Missouri. She first joined Teach for America as a 2007 core member in Washington, D.C. From there, she served as a legislative assistant for her hometown congressman, U.S. Representative William Lacey Clay of Missouri. And following her time on the Hill, Ms. Packnett served as a director on Teach for America's government affairs team and volunteered as the executive director of Dream Girls DMV, a mentoring program for girls and as founding co-chair of the Collective D.C., an organization for Teach for America alumni of color in the region. In 2014, Ms. Packnett was appointed to the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. She's been named one of Time Magazine's 12 New Faces of Black Leadership and with DeRay McKeeson awarded the Peter Jennings Award for Civic Leadership. Definitely a mover and shaker. Indeed. We're happy to have here in the studio this evening, prior to her keynote address at 7 p.m., Ms. Packnett, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Okay, I'd like to start off by asking you, what exactly is Teach for America and how was it started? Sure, Teach for America was started actually 25 years ago this year. Um, Our mission is to help create educational equity and excellence in the world. So what we do is we place excellent leaders in high-need classrooms, low-income schools, often that Uh, serve students of color in inner city and rural areas for at least two years to be exceptional teachers. And then we want to make sure that those folks go on to continue being teachers, but also to being leaders in education. So we have alums that are superintendents that are creating ed tech firms that are helping to change things at the U.S. Department of Education. Because educational equity will take every single tool we have in our arsenal to to work on it. You said in, in the world. Yep. So you, you have international outreach. We do. So Teach for America um, has 52 regions nationally. And then our sister organization, Teach for All, is in more than a dozen countries and opening even more sites. So we build homegrown teachers uh, to commit to this work um, and to bring, like I said, an excellent education to bear for every single student, regardless of zip code or background. Now, you mentioned the students. How many of your students, how have they done when they leave the program? Sure. So, um, so you know, we take people from all academic backgrounds to be teachers through our program. In St. Louis, we've got 115 core members, another 550 alums of our program who've completed those two years, who, again, are in some uh, form or fashion affecting education. 
but the students in our classrooms, uh, they're, they're regular kids in, in regular public and public charter schools. Uh, and on average, the students in our classroom do better with our teachers than they do with teachers from other backgrounds. So last year, on average, for example, uh, in our classrooms in St. Louis, our students made one and a half years of growth as opposed to just one year of growth in a year's time. And we know that when students are low income, they're more likely to be caught behind. So they need those additional months of growth every single year to catch up and to reach their full potential. And that's what we're committed to. Okay, so I, I'm wondering how, how are you uh, funded? Who sponsors you? That is Good a great question. question. Huh? That's a great question. Lots of people have that question, and they should, right? We should always be talking about um, how our organizations are resourced and how folks come into our children's lives. We um, are a combination of public and private funding. Most of our funding is private, so I spend a lot of my time either in classrooms or raising money from incredible supporters in St. Louis who believe in the work that we do and believe in the children that we serve. And then we do receive some, some funds from the state of Missouri and uh, a small amount of capital from the federal government. Now how do the, uh, the school districts in the areas where you have schools, what do they think about the program? Are they a part of it? Um, how, how do they just feel about that? Yeah, they're absolutely a part of it. They are um, our most essential partners, right? They are the ones in this work every single day, and so we are there to help support their vision um, for an excellent education in their district. So um, we spend a lot of time with fellow superintendents, principals in the district that are hiring our teachers, um, veteran educators who have a lot to teach us about uh, about how we serve our children the best. Uh, and so we work very, very closely with them. We do not enter a school unless the school district or a charter management organization requests our presence. So we are not just some kind of fly-by-night, savior mentality organization. We recognize that we have to be a part and parcel of the community. We really have to be in the fabric of the community, knowing the families, knowing our, our colleagues in the work. Um, and we have to be invited into this space, right, in order to actually commit in the way that we believe is necessary. You mentioned that your organization works in public and charter schools. Is there a uh, different approach between the, the two schools? So the, the, the thing about Teach for America is that not only do we place teachers in those schools, we provide them support, training, and development throughout the two years of the program. And in particular in St. Louis, we have a heavy emphasis, especially since Ferguson, on what we call culturally responsive pedagogy. So when we think about who our children are and where they come from, they come in with a whole set of beliefs, culture, uh, assets that they bring in with them given who they are. And we want to make sure that those are embraced and affirmed in the classroom and that a teacher is teaching through that lens. So our teachers are never taking a one-size-fits-all uh, approach, that they're really considering who a child is and what they bring to the space in order uh, to reach them effectively. So that means that that is kind of our consistent uh, teacher training model across all of our teachers. And that's relevant for our kids in charter schools and in public schools, right? Um, these are all the same kids. A lot of them face the same challenges. A lot of them have the same hopes and dreams. A lot of them are coming from the very same zip codes, whether or not they're in a charter school or a public uh, or a, a traditional public school. So, um, you know, we believe that there are just some fundamental things that all teachers have to have regardless of the environment they're in. So it works in both. It absolutely works in both. You know, in St. Louis, the majority of our teachers are placed in traditional public schools. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of our teachers and our alumni teachers are in St. Louis public schools, uh, Jennings, Riverview Gardens. Uh, those are smaller school districts that are in North St. Louis County that serve a lot of students that live near and around Ferguson. 
Uh, and then we have a handful of charter schools, one major charter school network, and then the rest kind of smaller boutique charter schools that we place in. But it's all about the need. When a school or a school district comes to us and says, look, we really do have a need for your talent and your teachers, we try to work with them to make it possible. We go where we're needed. Our teachers take the first job that they're offered because this is about um, uh, true service and commitment to equity and excellence in the classroom, no matter where you are. Well, that leads to my next question, recruitment of teachers. Mm-hmm. Where do you recruit? How do you recruit? If any of our listeners are in the education uh, field, how would they contact you to become a part of the program? And can, can I add to that real quick? Certainly. How do you vet those teachers? Ah, uh, that is that is the the real question, right? So. We recruit from every single academic background and career path. We have seen in recent years an increase in what we call second career professionals. So quite frankly, if either one of you wanted to become a teacher, you could come and apply to our program because what you receive through it is what we call alternative certification. So you actually don't have to have studied education. We provide you the training. You go to one of our partner institutions, the University of Missouri-St. Louis, to get additional training and support from them throughout your two years. And during that process, you are uh, becoming certified. And so so uh, if you are interested in that, you can go to www.teachforamerica, all spelled out, .org. Um, and not only can you find out more about the national program, you can find out all about our different, um, our different sites. We have a region in Indianapolis. We have our Chicago region that extends into Gary. Obviously, we have a number of teachers in St. Louis and Kansas City. So we have a, a large presence in the Midwest, across the country, quite frankly. Uh, and we really look for people who are exceptional leaders in your career on your campus because we believe uh, and we have proven over 25 years that the attributes of a good teacher are the same as the attributes of a good leader, right? You set high goals, you work relentlessly toward them, you invest people in those goals, and you constantly improve your practice as you go along, right? And so those things are flexible between between those two spaces, right? That's true for a leader, that's true for a teacher. And so those are the kinds of people we seek. And during our very uh, intense selective process, selection process, uh, we continue to vet people for those particular competencies. So we are certainly looking for people with those leadership skills and critical thinking and a high aptitude for achievement. But we're also looking for people with um, who exhibit a great deal of respect for people from low income communities who have experience in the communities where we are working and who recognize that um, it's fine to teach for a year or two, but it's um, much, much, much more important to dedicate yourself uh, in a lifelong pursuit of educational equity and excellence. So we really look for people who are committed for the long haul. And I've got a follow-up question with that. Have you had any students that have come back to become teachers? Yes, I love that question. It is um, it is always a great pleasure to matriculate what we call legacy core members. So those are students who were taught by Teach for America teachers. Actually, we've got one young man who is about to graduate from Mizzou, uh, who had a number of Teach for America teachers who not only continue to teach after their two years, but some of them are now on our staff. And so he sent all of us a text message the other day and he said, guess what? I got in. I'm assigned to St. Louis. And so now he'll be able to come back and pay that work forward. Right. The things that were given to him and the ways in which he was empowered, he can go and do that for other young men and young women in our city. So we're always excited about that. 
Well, I tell you, they sent the right person out to advocate for your organization. I'm, I'm, I'm watching Cornelius, so he's ready to sign up. <laughs> you know, come on, come one, come on. It's certainly very selective, but I have a distinct feeling that you guys have some of the, the qualities that we're looking for. So. Well, it's interesting. My wife is, really wants to hear you speak this evening. Uh, she's an educator. She's uh, been a preschool teacher for her whole career. Oh, wonderful. She's like, I really want to hear her speak. I really want to hear her speak. So there were certain things I had to ask. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, and much respect to your wife. You know, I... Teaching will always, always, always be the hardest job I've had, right? I mean, I work really long hours now. I'm an executive director full-time. I'm a protester and an activist in my in my spare time, which kind of doesn't exist, right, my personal time. But uh, at the end of the day, being responsible for human beings, right, and the, their development and their futures, um, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah, and I have yeah. so much respect for the people who, like your wife, who've been in this for um, such a long time and remain committed. Uh, and I want to make sure that there are people that surround teachers that have their back, right, that there are superintendents that have teachers' backs, that there are members of Congress that have teachers' backs, that there are lawyers and judges and doctors and everyone in the community that really has a teacher's back uh, uh, because they do often very thankless but critically important work for all of us. You uh, actually laid the kind of open door for my next question. Sure. I want to change up a little bit. Uh, you mentioned something about protests and uh, activists. Uh, you're originally from St. Louis. I am. And of course, we all know, uh, you know, when we talk about St. Louis, we think about the more recent events in St. Louis. Absolutely. Mike Brown, Ferguson, mm -hmm. the protests. Um. Missouri Governor Jay Nixon established the Ferguson Commission to address issues of racial and economic inequality in the St. Louis uh, area following that shooting. Mm -hmm. And the report was due to be released last year. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> I remember the DOJ, Department of Ju Justice, uh -huh. report, but I didn't hear too much about the report from that commission. Mm. So can you tell us anything about that? I sure can. And, you know, I, I will say you guys gave me a really kind introduction, but I really like to tell people that at the end of the day, I'm a protester, right? I was raised okay. by two very civically active um, uh, people who were engaged in social justice. My father's no longer living, but he was a pastor of a historic African-American congregation in St. Louis, and my mother um, was working in K-12 education and is now in higher education, and they raised myself and my brother to be people who never sit back when we see injustice. And so all of the kinds of things that you read about being appointed to the commission and the President's Task Force and the Time Magazine honor and all of these kinds of things, those things came about simply because I tried to make the extraordinary choices that my parents raised me to make and stand up, quite frankly, next to and behind um, and, and in ways that were inspired by our students. It was our students and a lot of young people across the region that were the very first ones out there on August 9th when Michael Brown was killed to demand answers, to demand justice, to demand truth. Um, and uh, it was their courage and their bravery that consistently uh, uh, inspired me and kept me coming back every single night. And so I found myself on the Ferguson Commission as someone who um, I hoped to try to bridge kind of the angst and frustration and desires and hopes and dreams of the community that I was standing with every night on the streets of Ferguson um, with this policy space, right, that I have been privileged to work in before and to try to kind of some kind of help translate between those two worlds, right? A lot of times um, when those two worlds aren't talking, we actually don't see any change happen. And so I was, I, I wanted to be on the commission uh, in order to help affect that change. Our report was released in November. 
Um, and we really call it the People's Report. Our co-chair spent a long time researching um, so-called riot commissions, right, the Kerner Commission and others before it, to make sure that we um, didn't fall into some of the same traps, right, that we really learned the lessons of history. So we wanted to make sure that our report was not ineffectual. We wanted to make sure that it didn't just sit on a shelf and collect dust. And so in a very literal way, there are less than 50 copies actually printed of the report because we literally don't want it to physically sit and get dusty. Um, it is something that can be found online at forwardthroughferguson.org. Uh, and half of the website is the actual report where you will see a number of recommendations in areas ranging from from uh, community police relations and municipal governance to education, economic mobility, and other things. But the other half is, um, is the telling of stories. It is the stories and the photos and the very, the very personal reflections from people who came to any number of our 60 fully public meetings to develop this particular report, whose lived experiences were really the inspiration for what we decided to recommend, right? Because what we wanted to say is we're not sitting on some mountaintop looking down at the commoners on high and kind of dictating how life should be, right? We should really be pulling from the community what we desire collectively and and we need to relate those things that we are recommending to the difference that they can make in people's everyday lives so when we talk about decreasing the amount of aggressive ticketing that we see in a place like st louis county that can lead to a lot of this overzealous policing that we experience there are people who are telling their stories of being caught in this cycle of debt just for having one speeding ticket or running one stop sign and being caught in a cycle that kept them out of work their kids out of child care and, and mounting debt for months to come Come, right. We have people that talk about what police violence has meant in their own lives. We have people that talk about what it means to be going to an unaccredited school and the fact that as a region, if we don't come together collectively to fix education, um, then we're going to continue to lose some of our greatest talents. And so, um, I, you know, I would certainly encourage you to explore the website. Again, it's for forward through Ferguson.org. And we call it that in particular because we want to see our region go forward. We want to hopefully serve as a model for other regions as they decide to press forward proactively. Um, and we know we can do that, not when we go around the hard stuff, but when we work our way through it. I've got a couple of questions. I, I grew up in Berkeley in the 60s, yeah. and I remember a lot of the things that were going on from a 13, 14-year-old person's mentality. How have the students now, since all of the events, how are they feeling about uh, how things are in Ferguson now? And what's the atmosphere overall for both black whites between the police department and citizens? <coughs> yeah, you know... It's it's been interesting and I I try to commit to always telling the truth even when it's not pretty. Um hopefully people will be able to engage in some of that truth tonight. Uh but you know, Ferguson really helped to ignite an, an, uh, this current wave of a national movement, right? I'm a student of history. I studied African American studies at WashU and um I am I'm, I'm I recognize that this is another era, right? It's not necessarily a new movement on its own, right? There were folks in, in Berkeley, right, in your time and times before all of ours that have been doing this work, and this is a revival, right, a continuation of that work. Um, and in that way, there are some things that are really ring true, right? It's still a very uh, musical movement, right? We we may not be singing the same songs, but we're singing songs and rhythmical chants. And, and when um, there was a protest just 
just last night and somebody brought out the drums, right? The African drums, which a lot of times accompany our marches. Um, a lot of the strategies are the same, right? So the mid-century civil rights movement used the sit-in, we used the die-in, right? And so you could come upon large public spaces and see hundreds of people laying on the floor to demonstrate um, the the disparities that, that communities of color experience when it comes to police violence. Um, and so a lot of those things are very reminiscent. Um, but as we look forward, you know, there are lots of things happening nationally, obviously. Um, there are uh, organizations as far as California and New York and Florida, um, organizations, organizers and individuals who are continuing to put in this work and who have seen some real progress and change in their region. We've seen change in St. Louis, too. Uh, in St. Louis City, now Ferguson is a part of St. Louis County, but in St. Louis City, the Board of Aldermen has approved um, a civilian review board so that its citizens have a bit more control and say so in the happenings of the police department. Um, the, the Ferguson City Manager and um, police chief are now different. Uh, we have a few more people of color on the Ferguson City Council. So there has been progress, but not enough. Right. And if you walk around Ferguson right now, you know, when I when I walk around there, <laughs> it's tough. I, I have I have a some flashbacks sometimes, right? Those are some very difficult nights. The tear gas and the the pepper spray and the M16s. I mean, it was really quite brutal in a lot of ways. Um, and so I get triggered sometimes when I go back there. But in other ways, it kind of is just business as usual, right? And people, some folks have, not living in Ferguson, but some folks who come to this space have forgotten kind of what really happened there. Um, really? And I, and I think that, like I said, not people living in Ferguson. Folks living okay. in Ferguson are never going to forget it. Um, and, and they're never going to let us forget it, which is, which is exactly what should be happening. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think people can just kind of be in the space and mill about and forget that that was the summer of our discontent, right? A lot of things really happened right there on that street. And not enough is different um, for those young people who walk home from the bus stop every day who go over to the corner store to get a candy bar every day, for those grandmothers who worry about their safety, for those moms and dads who are trying to make a way out of no way, right? And um, not enough is different about the economic, educational, or life outcomes of people, not just in Ferguson, but in large swaths of St. Louis City and County, uh, which is why we are in a stage right now at the Ferguson Commission where we, even though we've our charter has ended, we're now in an implementation phase. So a group of seven of us as commissioners are working on what the next steps are going to be, because if all we did was to get together and have some right. meetings and write a report, then that was a waste of everybody's time, energy, and money. Which and I refuse to have so been a part of that. In the past. Yeah, yeah. I, I said at the very beginning, that's not what I was going to be a part of right and i i continued to protest after i was appointed to the commission and after i was appointed to president the president's task force because i needed to remain close to what was happening and I, I needed to remember what the stakes were i couldn't get too comfortable in the meetings and the you know the oval office and those kind of places i needed to remember what was at stake remember what had happened to us remember what quite frankly has continued to happen to us and our children in order to make sure that we were really about our business so you needed to stay on the front lines you know, yeah, um, and there are thousands of people whose names you may never know, right. whose names I may even never know, who did that every single day. Um, 
when I was, you know, in Washington or when I was in a commission meeting, right? And those are the people that have kept this thing alive. Mm -hmm. And I just try to make sure that I acknowledge their sacrifice everywhere I go because their sacrifice was real. People lost jobs, people lost homes, people, um, you know, we're all kind of waiting to see what the effects of tear gas are going to be on any of us years down the road. So there was real sacrifice here. Uh, and, it, and it was important for all of us to sustain this work. Wow, that's awesome. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Miss Brittany Packnett from 2016. Once again, tonight's 2019 presentation by Attorney Janae Nelson begins at 7 p.m. You still have some time to get there. Uh, there's some preliminary things that will go on, but please don't try to miss this. It's at the Buskirk Chumley Theater, located at 114 East Kirkwood Avenue. Our show's producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, with help from the WFHB News Department Director, uh, Mr. Wes Martin. And tonight's board engineering team members are Taya Wilson and Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamel Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone, and we hope you enjoy, again, this special broadcast dedicated to the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day birthday day celebration. Keep your dial locked on WFHB to hear an exclusive remote broadcast from this year's citywide observance from the Buskirk Chumley Theater. Also be sure to tune in next Monday, January the 28th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org. This is WFHB Bloomington, Indiana, volunteer-powered community radio at 91.3 FM for South Central Indiana, also at 98.1 in Bloomington, 100.7 in Brown County, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. The current time is 6.59 p.m., and the current weather in Bloomington is 18 degrees and fair, with cold weather conditions persisting tomorrow and rain in the evening. 
and warmer conditions on Tuesday, or Wednesday rather. So now we're going to go over to a lot. We're going to go to a live feed at the Buskirk Chumley, where they're having our special Martin Luther King Jr. birthday party. <laughs> 